What's going on, George? Hey, Mike, what's up? Welcome to another episode. Yes, another episode. We are sponsored. You want to talk about our sponsors? Uh, I'll, I'll let you kick it off. You know, I want to say I want to say happy birthday again to you. It's, it, <laughs> Thank you. You just turned four one, the big forty one. Yeah, and um, you have no grace. Nope. We ate Italian food. It yes, was, we it was, did. It was delicious. We gained ten pounds. Yes, we did. Um, but happy birthday, man! Thanks. What What's your b- birthday resolution? I will just make one up. Oh, I'm just gonna just keep keep getting better, keep losing weight, getting better shape, um, just being just being better all around. I mean, that's all you can really do is just get better every day. It's about longevity now, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I gotta I gotta live long. So. Well, I stopped lifting a lot because I, I'm just tired of being big and bulk. Like, yeah. If you look at everybody who survives, there's like a caloric intake uh variable which is like if you like that's why the japanese lives live so long they're intaking a, a crap ton of uh calories it probably has to do with carcinogens too yeah and all kinds of stuff. And it's not good for like all the all the smoke outside from the burning uh, i know controlled burns but. i know we're moving to uh we're moving to japan yeah. we're going to start philcraft japan well that'd be interesting I would, I would I'll just go for the sushi. sushi. Yeah, <laughs> every day it'd be sushi and so, and was it uh, soju? Saki, Saki. Yeah, Korean soju is Korean. Korean. Yeah, 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 Korean. My bad. Those are soju kettles. I mm. should know that. Um, so uh, we did a thing with the Five Eleven Tactical, did the Ghost Recon thing, and I've been speaking at Five Eleven Tacticals all over Manteca, uh, Las Vegas, California, everywhere. Yep. Colorado. I just did one in Denver, but that's going to be a staple of what we do. Um, next year, which is Raul, um, myself. Anytime we're out and about training in a you know, during a weekend, we will set up like a Friday, yeah. eighteen hundred to nineteen thirty, like an hour and a ninety minute block overland uh, training. T Triple C, stop the bleed, survival seminar, etc. Yeah, they're good partners. They've been good yeah, partners. The, the one in Vegas was great. We had like about forty people there. I that think was, it was like awesome. fifty. I thought it was like 50. yeah, maybe fifty. Okay, it was okay. nice. It was a nice, nice. Group of people came on a Friday evening. What I like about it too, it's all new faces. Yeah, it's all new faces. Yep. But uh, they gave us a coupon code. It's Field One Fife, which is fifteen percent off. If you, uh, I, I have a five eleven tactical wallet. I got a watch. I got a laptop case. Yeah. Like I like their uh, textiles. I, I like all their stuff. It's nice. It's Apex it's, pants. Everything works. Apex pants is like the baggy yoga pants for dudes. Yeah, they got the the right stretch. They look and good, they, and they not they're not too baggy. You know what I mean? Like some of those pants people like to wear, they're like just so baggy on they're, them. They're, they're baggy in the satchel area. It looks yeah. you look like you're carrying around like a diaper. Exactly. Yeah, I don't like that. It's like I, I want to like they're fitted, but they're nice. They're like a functional fit, you know? I my, my Apex pants are my favorite ones. Yeah, if, mine are the Defender GoFlex jeans. Those 42s you got? Oh, uh, no, I'm down to 36s now. I've I been working out with Raul. I don't know, man. That's uh, We're going to have to get a measuring tape out. <laughs> Now, field one five at five below tactical dot com saves you fifteen percent. Also, Killcliff, I'm I'm sipping on the CBD. You're sipping on this ignite. Yeah, getting ready to do this workout. Are you? Yeah. How come you guys work out after nine o'clock? Does that make sense to you? You remember in the military we used to work out before nine, so we get an actual full day's work. <laughs> yeah, but I'm always working though. I'm I, I'm at home That's in true. my bed working. I'm at yeah. home after work working. So yeah, but that is it's really a lifestyle. Count. You know, I want to make sure that Fieldcraft is you know we're staying fit. Well, you know we got to zero our guns, too, for this hunt. Yeah. You're messing up, man. Know. You know how much stuff we got to do? I'm trying to get this day over with. I know. <laughs> well, oh. You know, one thing I do with the Kill Cliff, though, I've been doing the three drinks. So I've been doing the Ignite before the workout, 
and I do the endure during, and I do the recover after. You know what's funny is you call that the Kill Cliff Challenge. <laughs> and, and you thought it was something. I huh? thought it was something <laughs> legit, and you just made that up. I did. Where does the CBD fall into it? So I, I either I'll do it every other day, you know. The CBD? Yeah. I love CBD, man. It's great. It has a good flavor to it. It's not a ton of caffeine either. I drink about two or three of these a day. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I went overboard yesterday. I had like three recoveries yesterday. Did you? Yeah. No big deal. Um, so if you guys are interested in Kill Cliff, uh, we have a coupon code, Survival10. Saves 10% at killcliff.com. Always a big fan of Kill Cliff because they're all natural. It doesn't have all the crap. It's got no sugar, B vitamins. All the good stuff. This one even has electrolytes in it, which is awesome. And it justifies, like 15 calories, you can't beat that. There's a uh, lot of garbage I could drink those all day. Yeah, I could drink these all day. And the C, I've never heard of anybody putting CBD in a drink. And I'm a big fan of CBD. And this is like, I don't know why or or um, why nobody's done it. But this is the standard, these CBD yeah. drinks. I hope it says limited edition. I hope it's not limited. I hope it just continues well, to come out. they're coming out with another flavor of that. Oh, this is the lemon yeah, flavor. I, I hit him up. I said, you guys should make lemon lime because that's one of my favorite recover flavors. So. That is a good recover. Yeah. Also, uh, we're sponsored by Valley Food Storage. I want to say you did a really good job on that podcast. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I know. I get it. Were you reading from a teleprompter? <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> I just get super nervous for some reason. And then like when you're doing it by yourself, it it's just not... It's just uncomfortable when you're speaking to a mic. Yeah, it is. It is difficult, especially with somebody's not there to physically engage yeah, yeah, with yeah. you. But it sounded good. And uh, the cool story with Valley Food Storage, you guys, uh, we've been doing the, the safe home prep and talking about how much food and water and med and everything else you need to store. And Valley Food Storage is the source for us for dry food. I mean, they do a whole bunch of variations of food storage, and he talks about the science. Um, and also the process behind his food that he sells at valleyfoodstorage.com and also has graced us with a coupon code. If you text the word Fieldcraft to 29071, again, text the word Fieldcraft, one word, to 29071, uh, you'll get a big coupon. Yeah, it's a code. 20% discount really? off your first purchase. Yeah. Okay, so make that a big purchase, obviously. Yeah. Um, I actually, what I did is I ordered in bulk from him. Uh, a huge order, use my own coupon code, which is 20%, and then uh, I'm going to stock up. And, I, you know, a good rule of thumb is cycle through the food that you have in dry storage or canned goods. Dry typically is 12 months, uh, depending on where it comes from, and then uh, canned is usually five years, and all the way up to 10 years, yeah. depending on what you're canning. And the Valley Food Stores is 25 years. Whoa. It's all freeze-dried. It's freeze-dried. There's no they, – they add nothing to it, so it's all clean. There's no GMOs, no fillers, no preservatives, uh, nothing that you can't – like no other ingredients that you can't pronounce. You know what I mean? I like that, man. So it's everything you can you, – you read on the back is, is all natural. I so. like that. Um, also, we're sponsored by Hardhead Veterans. If you guys have been watching us since the beginning, we've done some stuff with Hardhead Veterans before. And Hardhead Veterans makes an HHV ATE ballistic helmet. It's just a – high-speed helmet that's made for ballistic protection against a whole bunch of fragmentation and bullets. It actually has an NIG or J level 3 alpha um, rating according to the to the standard and the, uh, the, the schoolhouse essentially that tests all the T&E for all these things. It also has good fragment performance at 17 grains at 2,400 feet per second. And these details, I, I like these details because hardhead veterans advertises these in his marketing of the details. You know, it's an ear cut. It's a high, uh, above the ear, 
high cut design. It's a ballistic helmet and it's affordable. And it also only weighs three pounds. And then there's different options out there, but super expensive, super heavy. Uh, and I'm a big fan of HHV, man. He's actually a former Navy SEAL as well, right? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah, and, it, and it, the helmet's it's super comfortable to wear. Like, it comes with additional padding and everything like that. So it's super comfortable. We have a coupon code. It's Fieldcraft. It's for $15 off your entire order, and you have the minimum purchase of $100. So that's for everybody. Just remember, Fieldcraft, to get you $15 off your entire order, but your minimum purchase has to be $100. And it's hardheadveterans.com. Hardheadveterans, yes. Hardheadveterans.com. Uh, also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. I always like to spell this out if you're a first-time listener, T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. Um, I'm actually running their truck gun. All the guys are running their truck gun, but I'm also running their 17 Charlie. That's what I teach with for pistol and carbine. I'll be in, uh, what are the dates? 22, 23? Yeah. Uh, 22, 23 of December, I'll be in... No, P 21st and 22nd. 21, 22 in Peora, Peoria, Arizona, which is basically north of Phoenix. Uh, I'll be teaching at Cowtown a pistol carbine course, and I'll be running uh, their 17 Charlie on the range on the 21st, and then I'll be running their carbine on the 22nd. Um, but Triarch builds custom pistols, carbines, and rifles, all the things that you need from the good old state of Texas, use the coupon code Philcraft one word, to save 5% on a build, any build of your choice. Um, and they do some high-speed builds, man. What else, what else, what else, what else, what else, what else? I think that's it. Oh, man. We're ready to start the podcast. That was easy. Who's the guest today? That was easy. Um, so today we talked to Jesse Keller. Jesse is a former... Um, actually, I, I don't like to say former because she, she's actually in the reserves now, but she was an active-duty MP who went and started doing dog handling, which after five years, she was allowed to try out for it. And she has done uh, almost more combat than me. Damn. I mean, she's done a lot of combat. She's always been attached to combat um, organizations or units outside the wire, meaning infantry units, typically in the Army. And she's an Air Force canine handler. Now she's in the reserves serving as a firefighter, and she contracts as a dog handler. And we got a lot into dog handling, her mindset, she's super fit, her physical fitness, uh, even the challenges that she's faced as being being a woman in the military, and also uh, got the opportunity to talk about her working with Vision of Vets, which is a nonprofit. That's how we met, a nonprofit that uses portraits of veterans to, uh, to show uh, service, self-sacrifice, and then advocate and educate future generations to be involved. Uh, was serving their country. So super pumped to talk to Jesse. And I'm, uh, hey, let's kick it off. Jesse, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for coming in. It's been, uh, you know, our, our deconflicting a schedule with you. Yeah. You're so busy, right? <laughs> as well as you. I know, both busy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't put this all on me. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I, I want to start kind of from the beginning because you have such a cool history. Um, I mean, you're into bodybuilding, you're a canine dog handler slash firefighter, uh, you've served in the military for an extended period of time, you're a vegetarian, you've done a whole bunch of cool stuff, and I want to start from the beginning because I want to give people context to where you come from, so let's start off. Uh, well, so I always release my age, and I'm, now as I'm getting older, I usually try not to anymore. But so I'm 34. Uh, I originally grew oh, you're up. A baby. My whole oh, you're such thanks. A baby. I'll pay you later. 
<laughs> I was like, the military ages you pretty good, I swear. I'm like, oh, man, but that, I'll take it. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, so I'm from the East Coast. And uh, my mom, she was a single mom, and I have a younger sister who's about six years younger than me. And um, so I grew up there, and I guess you can say uh, where my future with the animal training and everything kind of started back then because uh, we had horses. And uh, my mom worked two jobs. She actually worked for a police department, so I think that might have started where I was really interested, kind of in the law enforcement side. Uh, she was a dispatcher, and um, we just always had cops in the family, basically. And um, and my grandpa was in the military. He was drafted for the Navy, but um, that was really about it. We didn't really have any military background in any of the family members. And uh, we learned a lot, like on chores. I didn't really watch TV a lot, and uh, we were always shoveling manure and taking care of the dogs. My mom was like a huge rescue fan. Um, she was a horse trainer. Uh, so that kind of started, I think, where I am now. And uh, I went after high school, I was planning to go to Penn State and uh, we didn't really have any money. And I was like, how am I going to go to school? I didn't really know my dad. He was kind of like in and out. Um, so we were really just raised by my mom and our grandparents were next door, which was awesome. And then uh, I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to join the military. And my mom's like, what? <laughs> like, you're so random. And I was swear I was going to be a marine biologist. I wanted to work with animals was always my passion. And um, my grandfather, you know, being back in his age was like, you know, women in the military just didn't really like kind of wasn't really norm to him, you know, mm -hmm. unless it was like the nurses or like the housekeeping or something like that. So he was always worried. And then I was like, I think I'm going to be a canine handler. And then he's like, oh, my God, this child <laughs> of mine, what is she doing? And uh, so that's kind of where it all began. So I graduated in 20, 2003, um, and I enlisted in the Air Force. I just wanted to work with animals, so I didn't know which direction or what branch. And I, um, I went to the Air Force one, and my friend, I only have like one friend that was in the military, and he's like, uh, go Air Force. And I was like, why? He's like, they take care of you. And I was like, that's true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my recruiter took me to McGuire and Fort Dix mm -hmm. to see the bases. And uh, that's when I made my ultimate decision because I saw how Fort Dix was living. <laughs> and then I saw the Air Force kids. I was like, okay, sold. And, uh, and that's where I started. And uh, I wanted to be a canine handler. I kind of, I didn't know I'd have to wait a couple years. She was like, oh yeah, you enlist and you go right to it. And uh, needless to say, I had to wait five years for that, but I uh, enlisted oh, wow. in uh, security forces. And then my first duty station was down in Valdosta, Georgia at Moody Air Force Base. Oh, that's really cool. So you started out as, and I, I, I don't know why I assumed that, but I figured that you would probably be a security forces personnel before you become a dog yeah, handler. And that's and for people who don't know what that is, that's like the equivalent of military police officers for the Air exactly. Force, right? Yeah, they used to, like back in the day, they called it Air Police. Uh, then it went to Security Police, and then it changed like to Security Forces just as the years kind of kind of migrated. Yeah. But uh, Or exactly, Military Police MP. So same thing within all the branches. Yeah, so you had already served five years in the military prior to becoming a dog handler. Right. So I got really lucky because the unit, I was a part of a special unit. So as you know, Air Force, Chair Force, right? I'm sure mm. we got some big <laughs> tough army guys on here. But um, so I didn't really live an Air Force life. I'd like to say I had the perks of some Air Force stuff, but I really was assigned to Army for all my tours, mm. uh, which is actually really cool because the Army really never, they're like, oh, she's Air Force. She's going to do whatever she wants anyway, you know? Yeah. And um, so it was really neat. But the unit I was assigned to is called the 820th. And all 
they did was train for combat. So all we did was come home, train for uh, a couple months, and then we go back out the door. And we actually were attached to Army. So that's where my whole life, I think, really took place and uh, moved forward into where I am today and uh, and the person I am today. But um, so I got to what we would call Ranger Games. We go out there, we try to, you know, ambush each other and, and do all this stuff. And they had a canine unit. And they always needed people to learn how to take care of the dogs and be decoys and spot for them. And that was immediately what I wanted. So actually, I was working with the canines immediately in my career as the chew toy mm. and uh, what we would call spotter. So as they would train to you know, lead the teams downrange looking for explosives or enemy, uh, I was always that person that learned how to handle the dog just in case the handler went down. So I actually really started right away. Uh, and I was very fortunate. Um, the canine teams that were down there, they were very elite. And um, they were like, you have to be physically fit, um, put in extra time. And then that's when I really started to see, like, I really want to go this direction. And then at my five-year mark, you're able to retrain and actually go into that uh, complete MOS. And then that's when it started as an actual handler. Oh, that's really cool. So you, when you did that at the five-year mark, you get trained and then... You change your actual skill set, your yeah. job, identifi- the identification is completely different. And then what do you do for the rest of your career as a, as a handler? Like what kind of things would you do as an Air Force dog handler? So I was lucky um, just being assigned to the units I had. Um, so it was more combat related. So mm-hmm. uh, we were all pretty much an EOD team down at Moody. Uh, and then even when I got assigned to Luke Air Force Base, when I came out to Arizona in 2010, um, we got uh, their taskings changed and went straight to combat. We call them jet taskings, joint mm-hmm. expeditionary teams and uh, were tasking and they were getting assigned to the army so I'm like yes this is what I live for so mm. I was so lucky because they were like oh you're gonna go to an LE base and I was like I've never driven in an LE car I don't know how to arrest nobody I was like all you know all I know how to do is like I walk around with my big gun 240 a 203 <laughs> on my rifle and I was like oh I'm gonna be messed up and then the mission changed and I was like yes but um, obviously working as canine um, you work in explosive dog narcotics uh, obviously downrange um, that was my main focus Focus. So uh, looking for IEDs, um, uh, looking, uh, always being a um, able to go in for a raid, looking for a suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the main things you want to do. And you can do that stateside and overseas. It's kind of the same. Obviously, uh, we have different rules of engagement depending on where you are. And then you know your rules once you're stateside as well. So, it's a super dangerous job, right? I, mean, I remember our EOD dogs or our you know, our Malinois, our MWDs, we're always out front. Yeah. Because, right, the IED threat is it could be detected by a dog early before the early detection, obviously. And so you guys are always in the front of the movement, correct? Yeah, and I, I think what was neat is I like to, everyone always jokes. Um, I'm pretty, they always say like, I'm a real boy, uh, obviously. Um, so I'd like to like hang with the guys and like be one of the guys. And then I started dressing like one of the guys is what they would say because we had to blend in so much because Air Force getting drafted and putting into Army, we were having different uniforms. And then mm-hmm. they, they saw that they wanted to take, um, they were putting bounties on the dogs and bounties on the handlers. And we like, we want everyone to be universal. So that's when we started, when we started infiltrating with other units we started wearing their you know camis and then it would just say a little thing saying air force at the top Mm -hmm. and uh, we tried to blend in exactly to what they were so whatever they were trained on however they trained we had to pass army pt tests if i was going to work with the army i had to pass a marine test uh, if i was going to work with them and uh and we blended in as much as possible and then walking in front down range um we we almost tried to blend in and we started working our dogs off leash which was a little tricky because our dogs were bite dogs as well Mm -hmm. um they came up with a program called 
called SSD, which was huge in the uh, in the army. The army actually owned that program, mm-hmm. and it was all um, search dogs, EOD dogs that were rent to like work down like a hundred yards mm-hmm. and be off leash. But we wanted to do that with our military working dogs, the bite dogs as well. We just had to make sure we have full control over them. So Luke actually is what taught me this whole off leash training and gave us capabilities where I could literally be back with the team and my dog could be way far out in front and you don't know really who that dog was assigned to. But obviously as a handler, um, we were out in front with the minesweepers, um, any kind of jammers that were out there. Sorry for my dog. I think it's she's okay. It's I, have good. A dog, I have one of my well, little canines here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she might make some noise. Um, so yeah, so we were out in front and then, um, just kind of knowing that, uh, it, it is a little weird, you know, knowing that like, okay, well, if my dog don't step on it, I'm pretty much the next one. Yeah. Um, so you kind of got into that mindset a lot. I, I remember in, uh, I think we were resurging in uh, Afghanistan, which just means the counterterrorism unit I was in hadn't been back to Afghanistan in a long time. Mm-hmm. And so on that first rotation, we were next to a ODA, a detachment that was an army, obviously Green Beret detachment, but they had an Air Force German Shepherd and Handler attached to them. Yeah. That dog wound up getting killed that trip because an IED went off and the power lines fell yeah. and he bit or he he ran into the electric uh, wires and wound up getting killed. Ugh. And I remember meeting that dog and meeting that young, uh, I think it was maybe an E4 and E5, super young kid. And and he, I almost felt like at the time, um, because we that team didn't have an SF military working dog, right. that he was just overwhelmed. I mean, he was just like, "Whoa, this is crazy!" Yeah. And he adapted well over time, and then integrated. But that was his first combat rotation as well, mm-hmm. and then he lost his dog. And I, I know that I remember when that happened and the impact it had on him. And I and I talk about this before because I've had a Belgian Malinois named Vinny, yeah. which is a task force dog, saved my life. It, bit a suicide bomber about 15 meters in front of me. Um, and I've lost a couple of military working dogs on a couple objectives over my career. But had, did you have any um, bad instances or, or uh, catastrophes that were dog-related when you were overseas? Uh, with me personally, um, so my first canine, um, Oscar, he uh, who passed away, um, he didn't pass away in combat, though. We did retire him out. But I was assigned to, um, to a unit... Um, and we went out on a couple missions and uh, we actually, we had a predator come out and um, we found a, a guy that was putting out, um, you know, the big yellow jugs that was big, mm-hmm. hot and heavy, probably like around 2010 and, and 11 when they were putting yeah, all the, yeah. you know, anal in there, the mo- yep. um, ammonium uh, nitrate and aluminum. And uh, so we, we found one guy, um, they actually, um, they, they set it off and they blew him up. And so we actually had to go out there and find the body parts. Mm-hmm. So um, we went out there and then he actually already had one in place. So we had to go find the explosive, find him, and then come back. And uh, so we went out there and we had strikers at the time. So we went out, uh, strikers dropped us off. Uh, then we went out on foot and uh, we went out there and we located the device. It was still kind of being made. So at that time they were having like where different people kind of come and set things up. And uh, so the first part of the explosive, you know, was getting made. And so we found that we located that. That was great. It was huge. It was a big find. It was two of these yellow jugs. And then um, we started finding the body parts. And then my dog actually responded again on the hand, uh, which was crazy. Where I was like, thank God he's not a retriever, man. And he didn't bring the hand back. Because I was like, oh my God, we got another one. That and then mouth. they're like, oh, that, you know, and we're zooming in and we're trying to find it like with our ACOGs and we're like, 
it doesn't look normal. And then we're like, oh, this is the hand. And, yeah. and which helped us because it has fingerprints and all kinds of stuff. So, man, it was such a successful mission. We were all like, you know, high as a kite. We're like, this is great. We've had, now let's go home. And we call back into the strikers and we go. But unfortunately, someone was like watching us. And uh, so a hasty ID was kind of set place. And I took our striker out. And I think... Um, I was more concerned. I mean, we all rocked in the back. Uh, luckily, we were okay. Our striker caught on fire. It rocked over. And um, so we had to climb out the top of the turret and everything. And my dog, he looked okay, but his back end got knocked out. So, And we were only actually back in, uh, only had maybe about two more weeks left until we were going home. So that was probably my biggest extent. Um, I've never had anything um, right in front of me blow up with any of my canines. You know, we've located devices, caches. Uh, so I think I'm pretty lucky just taking a, a tanker, you know, and getting kind of rocked. Um, and then, of course, it was so funny because all the guys, we all hit. Everyone's got like little bruises and blood everywhere. And they're all worried about the dog. They're like, is Oscar OK? Like, that's oh, all I heard over the yeah, net, you yeah. know, and they're hurt. And I never get in the first striker. Um, we're always in, you know, like second or third. And and it was just by chance we had so many people out with us we just had to load and go and we got in the first one and the poor kid in the front we're trying to get him out and because uh, it's on fire and the, all that I cared about was the dog so <laughs> so I was very lucky with the team I was with uh, he got out he was able to work uh, and because uh, we had to clear the area again for EOD and then we had to bring out a tow uh, well, I guess you could say a tow truck to yeah. bring the striker back but that was probably my most significant with uh, injuries to the dog um, that I was really worried about and then actually when we came back we got x-rays and then oxygen Oscar was retired. He had a slip disc due to the oh, blast and everything. So, um, cause he was actually going to go back out. He was scheduled for another deployment. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was really lucky cause I was a little girl and uh, this is the only time I'll say I was a little girl is because he was going to get reassigned and I was picking up another dog and uh, I was so upset, but he was going to a good handler, one of my uh, troops, uh, Lopez. And then they were like, Nope, he's not going anywhere. He's They're like, he's done. Yeah. He's done. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well, that's good. And then he wound up passing away of old age yeah. and retirement. He had a, he lived with me, he retired to me and then he had oh, blood in his stomach. Um, so they think he had cancer and all this stuff. Oh. He just collapsed. Um, and he lived to, uh, we retired him at about eight and he lived to about nine and, oh. um, and he was a great pup and then he just collapsed and we took him in and they said he's not going to make what it. What kind of dog so. was he? He was a German shepherd. Oh. So yeah, so I had him and then the dog after, um, Crash, who has quite a name for himself, um, was also in the, he was a Czech shep, but you know, a lot yeah. of people say German shepherd, but, um, so I had two main shepherds in my career. I've trained with Belgian Malawas and a whole bunch of other, but those were the two that were actually What's well, a great life though when you think about the life expect expectancy of a dog? That's about average, yeah. and then that kind of life for them to live with purpose—that's amazing. It is crazy. Um, so you know, we had talked a little bit about it at the radio studio about female engagement, and yes. then uh, women integrating in all male units. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, some things have changed. Like women are allowed to serve in combat operations and combat MOSs and right. specialties. Um, and I interviewed Lisa Jaster, who was uh, awesome. one of the original women that went to Ranger School. Uh, there was three total that uh, wound up finishing, and she was the first reserve officer to pass Ranger School, which is a huge accomplishment. Oh, my God. It's, I, I heard her. I actually listened to that Did podcast. You? It's on the a great way up podcast. Here, I, thought it was I awesome. love it. Like, yeah. I thought it was a good podcast. I was like, oh, man, I just had a new woman crush. I was like, here we yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> Lisa's, Lisa's, she's an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, and she's also an inspiration for many. And I wanted to ask you, because a lot of people don't understand this, but uh, women have always been integrated in military organizations. I mean, since the beginning of time. Let's, I mean, just in recent history, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which is the precursor to Special Forces and the CIA in World War II, they had female operators mm -hmm. that were doing um, 
behind enemy lines, training auxiliary forces, conducting sabotage and subversion, and all these high-speed missions because uh, of the amount of signature they reduced. Mm-hmm. If you know, when I when I had a reconnaissance team in special forces, our our main principle was called advanced forwarding operations, which is called AFO. And for uh, Joint Special Operations Command, we would do operations in specific countries where we're building the intelligence picture, right? right? And that requires information gathering, et cetera. But if I was in the middle of, I don't know, name X country, and it was me and a female uh, who was specializing in reconnaissance, which we did have uh, an augmentation of female engagement teams attached to us where we trained them like operators on our team, Mm -hmm. and we were doing that, then it would reduce the signature where people weren't paying as much attention to us as, as like as a couple, right. and then collecting that information. So there's always been a place for women in special operations specifically, but also the military. And before female engagement became a thing, you were serving in this kind of capacity. Can you talk about your experiences as a female operating with all male units, and then uh, kind of that interoperability of uh, your take on it? Uh, I guess that's pretty much been my whole career. If you look at all my job past histories, um, I absolutely love it. Um, so, but yeah, what is, is very interesting is, uh, when I did my first tour, um, to Iraq with the 820th with A23, we actually had a CCT commander. And so for air force, that was a little different. He wasn't a security forces. He was, you know, um, he was more already on the combat side and he had such a different mindset and uh, Colonel Palmer, he's retired now and I'll never forget him because he gave me every opportunity as a woman to just be equal. He, he didn't, he didn't ever say anything like, Oh, you're a girl and you can't do this or you shouldn't be able to do this. He said, Hey, it's gender neutral. He's like, you want to do this? Then you have to pass this test. And ever since then, it's just changed my mindset on everything. Um, you know, with PT standards, obviously there's always male and female. Uh, but when I'm leading a a team of men or I'm becoming a boss or something of that, I always try to make sure that I'm rating myself on their standards or on theirs because I want them to understand that, you know, I'm here and this is all the same, you know? And, uh, so I've continued that. And um, when we were back in the day in like 2010, when we started going overseas, or I'm sorry, in 2004, um, we were in Kirkuk, Iraq, and we were doing little missions out there uh, with the army outside the wire. And we got tasked to do this Task Force 1041 to link in with the big red one, the first, inf- you know, first infantry. And I mean, that was pretty big. They had a big name for themselves. So they were like, okay, we had to pass these PT standards overseas, and then they were moving us to Balad. And when we got there, they were like, we're going to send all the females home. And we were like, what? Why? Like, there was only about five of us in like a 210 unit of men, and um, we didn't understand it. And they were like, the president says like, women cannot be in combat roles, cannot be outside the wire. And our, I don't know how or the, the, the behind the scenes stuff happened, but our uh, commander was able to push us to move forward. And we were a part of now just doing all combat patrols outside the wire. And uh, it was just really crazy just to be heard that we were going to have to go home or that we were going to have to be like um, in the we were going to be behind the scenes and have to be inside and be RTOs or, you know, just being uh, working the radios and stuff like that. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. I want to go play. And um, so whatever our commander did, he made it work. And uh, and we went out there and uh, it's been challenging. I think the hardest thing back then is just the men aren't used to having females 
or they might have had a bad experience. And I'm not saying for all women, but uh, there was a lot of times where they go out there and the women couldn't carry the weight and they just put them in there because, oh, we ha- well, we have to because she's a girl and we don't you know, want to segregate or anything like that. And I'm just a firm believer if the person can't carry their weight, then they need to go, you know, because I learned that in my first unit, I was falling out of ruck marches. I couldn't keep up on their five mile runs. And I was just like, man, I used to go home and cry in my dorm room. I'm like, I'm never going to like, and these guys go to ranger school and pre-ranger and airborne. They were the Gucci-ness of the air force. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to keep up with these guys. And it wasn't until we did a ruck and one of the guys, Spitzer, um, came back and he was like in my face and he's like, you're going to get someone killed. He's like, is that what you want? He's like, we're not picking on you because you're a girl, but you're going to get someone killed. And that moment like changed my life. And then to hear all the guys that went to Ranger and tell me like what we're about to go and do and that if I can't pull somebody out or someone has to pull my weight, like just changed my whole mindset. So I, uh, I learned differently then and I made sure that I could pull their weight. And, um, and it was hard because every time as a woman, I think a lot of people can relate. You have to prove yourself. But I don't think it's a bad thing because I think there's men out there, you know, that are going to have to prove themselves too. Uh, If you're a skinny guy, people are going to probably look at you like, can you really carry all that weight on you or something like that? Uh, But a lot of women, I think they're just, they get upset or don't realize, you know, that they have to enter the gender neutral and might have to, to show up a little bit. And it was a little funny. We always say, you might have to do like, I have to perform 110% better than you just to be 50%, you know, because I was a girl and I was just looked down upon. Um, but having that been told to me all the time or told I can't do something kind of made me want to do it. And I kind of want to show them and show myself that I could do it. Um, so I think that's where it started. But I went into a lot of situations where I was told I couldn't go because I was a girl. Um, one time in Afghanistan, my um, squad leader, he was like, I want you to lock yourself in your, they had make these little huts for all the canine handlers that get um, sent in for missions. And he's like, I want you to lock yourself in when you go to bed at night. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was told I even couldn't go work with some scouts because they haven't seen a female in a year. And they were like, and they're having a female handler come in. And I was like, no, I want to do the mission, my dog. And I was like, train the best for this mission. I'm like, this is the best mission. I'm going. And my my kennel master didn't want to send me. And he was so scared that I was going to get raped or something. I'm yeah. like, I got a big bite dog and I got two guns. I'm, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and these guys never did anything. Obviously, they make jokes. I'm sure they said a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I heard a lot of things. But it never changed the way of me wanting to show them that I can be there as a teammate. And I think after a while, once they saw that they could count on me, the mind, you know, mind, the eyes behind them kind of changed and I hope I change that for them on how they look at some women um, and I'm really excited on all the stuff that women can do now and be a part of it and it be known um, but um, I'll throw out there Colonel Palmer actually had me lead the first um, female combat patrol and I thought he was crazy because I was like we're all gonna die out here mm-hmm. um, and uh, well, tell it, us about that you mentioned that <laughs> yeah. it was like an all-female combat patrol how, how did he where did that idea come from and then what was the context of it so he um he saw in the paper air force had like their first all-female flight on like a c-17 or c-130 so they have flight load masters um everybody on there was all female and Mm -hmm. he was like i'm gonna one-up this and he's like i got an idea and he gets a hold of our captain and uh, captain hall and he's like i'm gonna put together an all-female combat patrol and then he called me in and i was like are you crazy like we only have five women like we need a team of 12 or 13 and to fill all the humvees and have humvees back then um and (laughs) and so what he had to do is put admin girls too in it i said oh we're definitely gonna die i was (laughs) like this dude is crazy i didn't even want to do it i was like no sir and i'm still young i was just learning how to be you know a team leader let alone now a squad leader um and 
And so it was very challenging. And he's like, I want you to lead the team. Obviously, I have my captain, you know, but he's like, I want you to be the squad leader. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I think we ran into absolutely everything we could. But it was probably one of the most memorable nights I've ever had. And uh, we all made a joke. You know how women, we all have our periods and we cycle together. It was like the best man bashing <laughs> combat patrol ever, bro. Like I was, we were like, yeah, this dude over here, man, we got you. And it was just, it was such a, uh, a bonding experience. It was like a pillow fight, you know, you with your girls, you have like your slumber parties. That's what I, these girls. You guys will, broke out. Yeah. And no team wanted to mess with us. So it was pretty funny because we had other combat units out there, everyone patrolling. And um, they were like, oh, you know, stay away from the, from the female team you know you'll get sucked into the, like the black hole or something and uh, we actually had a name we were called the twat team uh it stands for a uh, tactical women's assault team so it is real um and my colonel was very very excited once we came up with the acronym for him <laughs> a colonel seems squared away he yeah seems like you a know yeah i think uh, he's in all my thoughts all the times because of the stuff that he just he just believed in all of us you know and he gave me so many opportunities uh, as a woman in a, in a career f- time frame that really didn't support that as much mm-hmm. and looked down upon us. And of course, all the guys, like, they were like, oh, these girls aren't going to make it. They're going to break a nail. They're, and I mean, we found two IEDs. We were shot at. We had a helo in, our British uh, counterparts for EOD. And I mean, it was the fun. Our, our trucks broke down. We lost calm. I mean, everything that could have happened wow. happened. And then we did it. And it was over. I think we had to stay out there for a 36-hour be- uh, patrol because um, then we there was so many things that happened that night. They didn't have enough. So we stayed out there. And one of my girlfriends actually just posted an old photo. I was like, oh, my God, look at that <laughs> of us walking down the roadway. And I was like, man, that was a crazy night. And we were so tired laying on the streets. And what was really funny is that we actually found the one IED was because um, this one guy like really liked the women and we were nice to his wife. It was really weird how we got to know where the IED was and stuff like that. And the villagers Mm. really thought it was crazy that they were all women. And, really? Um, yeah. So, um, so it, they told actually, you because yeah, of yeah, the it, rapport you built. Yeah. It wow. blew our mind. And um, we used to make jokes back then. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I don't know why I say this stuff because it's going to come back to bite me. But <laughs> we all made names. Nobody gave our real names when we were outside the water. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I love Xena, Warrior Princess. She was like my, she was I, everything to me when I was Zeno growing was up. Name. So Xena was my name. And I was usually a 240 gunner when I started. And uh-huh. then I moved to RTO, field RTO, and then driver, and then to um, team leader and then to a squad lead. And so when I was in the turret, you know, I used to have the villagers, like when we go through, yell Zena, you know, I thought I was really cool back then. And, uh, but it made a name for it. So they thought all women <laughs> were Zenas. Zenas. So, um, so yeah, so that was pretty cool. They're like, tell Zena where the, where the bomb is. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so that, that day, bro, was like crazy. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. You know, uh, all, all the girls coming together um, and working together. Um, it was just amazing. And then the EOD team that came in, they had one female and there was like four British dudes and uh, they were like we want to go out with you guys all the time I'm like oh yeah I'm sorry with all chicks bro and like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a combat patrol can't get any better than that so, that's yeah. amazing what, yeah. what's a cool thing that you guys one that you had that those overall experiences and they were positive yeah. experiences how has that impacted your your life now because I mean you served on active duty and then you're in the reserves yes. now right as firefighter yeah, talk about career. that transition and then um, how did how does all that experience translate into your civilian life now? Um, so I think 
the missions and going overseas and really learning that you are really there protecting yourself and your others um, is a bond that most people can't understand. Obviously, I know you understand that. But when you try to tell other people in the civilian world or even in the uh, in the military, they're in the military, but they haven't served that mm-hmm. type of lifestyle. It's different. Like um, all I had was my mom and my sister, really. And, uh, and my mom passed away. That's what happened with my career, why I tra- transferred into the reserves. But it is a brotherhood. And when I say that, I mean sisterhood as well. But I think... Um, it's something that it's my family now. Like I really consider everyone that had taught me so much in my first duty station. I, we just had our like first reunion in Vegas, which was epic. Um, this is here and they have become my brothers and sisters and family. And I, I just, it's just amazing how we are still connected still to this day can call up anybody and we'll all be there for each other. And it's just an amazing feeling to feel that. And I think it's hard to relate sometimes to other people when you have other people calling or just checking on you and they're like, why do you guys like even still talk or how does that still happen? And, and some people just don't really understand like, bro, man, we like slept, we peed next to each other. You know, I mean like one person watch your back while you go to the bathroom and it's just a weird environment that a lot of people think is just weird. So I think that made a huge impact. And then into my canine world, um, it it got even tighter and uh, I had so much more respect for these people and the things we were going through and then uh, transitioning uh, going when my mom passed away I had to get out and stay in Arizona I was living in San Antonio and I came back for humanitarian she uh, passed away of breast cancer and then um, we had horses I had a younger sister Uh, it was I needed to stay in Arizona and the military said no you need to take this Uh, it was a cake deployment to like be a liaison in Kuwait and then San Antonio's you're gonna go back and I'm like I just I just can't right now I said can you give me like six months to a year and they were like no and I was like I get it it's the military so I understood and I only had two months on enlistment and I said I'm gonna get out and they don't have canine in the reserves and I was like well you know, I always kind of like looked into search and rescue dogs and I was like, well, maybe I'll learn into the fire side. So I got really lucky, uh, to transfer as an E6 into the fire department and, uh, and go into the reserves and then kind of continue that type of mentality. But I can see I'm a person that needs to be in a career where it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood and you count on each other mm-hmm. because when I was out and I got a new canine job, I started working a little bit on my own. It was more on your own basis, kind of linking in with people. And I, I just didn't feel normal again. Like I, I needed that, that team mentality. I didn't care where I was in the team, but I just needed it. And I think that came from kind of growing up the way I did with the military. So you needed that camaraderie to yeah. be brought together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I have, uh, you know, a couple of theories behind it, but I think a lot of the things that we felt deployed in the suffering together mm-hmm. is what civilians are looking for now because they don't suffer. Like most people, most people do don't understand suffering and then coming out of that, right? So it's like yeah. the resiliency you build when you're broken and then you kind of climb out of that situation, whether it's like a mission that went mm-hmm. bad and then you kind of made it out of that. That whole process is something that civilians don't really experience yeah. uh, to scale. And so I think, um, you know, that's why they do Spartan mud races, mm-hmm. you know, jumping over fire and climbing over walls. And that's an accomplishment. That's yeah. like a, a process coming out of it where they post pictures and they talk about it which is super healthy, but mm-hmm. it's like, that's part of the experience. And you talk about transitional issues um, where it's hard to relate to people. Did you experience any other issues? And are you currently, do you think you're in transition still? And and has the reserve mended that or is it just 
just enough? Like, where, where are you at with that? that I, that's a great question. Um, so I, I still think I'm going through like a transitional period. So going into the fire service, learning a new career was one thing. So it, it allowed me to still stay on military orders for six months out of the year. So I haven't fully gone to a traditional reservist yet. So the last two years I've been on like military orders for half that year. And then I had to do my real world training and, um, so like OJT. And so I was on, I just came off orders in May again this year. And, uh, so I have I haven't really fully separated myself and um, which I think kept me kind of in that mental state of still that men, that military lifestyle that I was living. Um, but I kept myself so busy. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to like slow down. And then when I got the civilian canine job and it was like more freedom and you didn't have a team anymore that you had to really train, even though there's a couple of us here that work together, it wasn't, they're all retired there. It's a different mindset. Now you're not training for combat. When you train for combat, it's something completely different or, or now even within the fireside training to do that, it's completely different than just being on your own and training a dog. So what I started doing was kind of going back to my old things and I started reestablishing my connections with the police departments and then just training with them uh, and making that like my regular what I used to do. And it kind of brought me back because I did go through a big downward phase where I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I got out for family and I really wanted to finish my years. And my next step was San Antonio. And I, I had this huge career path and then it just got whacked. And uh, it did. It took me down a spiral. And then, uh, you know, relations come and in and out and that kind of messes you up, you know, in your home life. And it was just like now I'm I'm slowly like I think I'm getting back to where I need to be. Uh, people always say she doesn't know what she is today. One day she's wearing a fire outfit. Next day she's got a dog next to her. Next thing she's in a fitness show. So but I mean, it, it is I just I kind of keep myself going. And I know my passion is training and working with working dogs or working animals. And um, and I like first responder jobs. So once I realized that that really is what I want to do, um, I've just made sure I stayed in that, whether it's working or volunteering and just kind of expanding my knowledge. Yeah, I know health and fitness, if you uh, check out your Instagram page, <laughs> I, I stalked you a little bit. I know <laughs> health and fitness is a super um, a significant outlet for you when when you look at probably potentially something that you did in the military and then now in the civilian life, you're competing now. Yeah. And talk talk to us about what you compete in and then what kind of discipline it takes to do something like that. Because I, I know a little bit about it, but it's that's super difficult stuff. <laughs> As we could stuff. have like cookies right in front of us yeah, and nobody no, would know no. about it. And them. you're a vegetarian too, right? <laughs> yes. So mm -hmm. doing that and you're a vegetarian, talk to us about that. That's that's pretty weird. crazy. Yeah, I'm definitely weird, you know. Um, so, uh, so I, um, so I like to eat. I was actually really chubby. Um, so I just started. Um, you were chubby. Yes, honey. What? Oh, yes. I hi. I think I burnt all those. I gotta see those up. pictures. <laughs> You're about to see them in a couple of months. Um, they're gonna re, re come back out as an adult. Um, yeah, I didn't know much about food. So I'm a vegetarian because I have allergic reactions um, to uh, red meat, shellfish, chicken, really? and turkey. Yeah, so I was born, they found out on like Thanksgiving when I was nine, I had allergic reaction to turkey on uh, on turkey day. And uh, I was, I felt so bad for my mom because I had everything wrong with me growing up. Like oh. I was always in the hospital Yeah. and um, she's like, what the heck? And then my sister had nothing wrong with her. She was mm. very blessed. And um, so we always have to laugh at that. So I started at a very young age. We just omitted everything um, that was 
was meat related, fish, anything. And then, so we didn't know diet back then. And my mom was actually an aerobics instructor. She's very fit, very active. The woman never rested, um, whatever she was doing. And, um, so she didn't really know what to give me. So we, and we always kind of cook for ourselves. So I would eat like pizza all the time, yeah. like those, um, kid cuisines, like I thought yeah, was cool. Yeah. And kid cuisines. Yeah, I remember bro, that was the like, most Those are the best, like the, the little brownie Oh in my them. gosh. They were so unhealthy, but it's so good. <laughs> and she would just, you know, I lived off of like uh, pizza, bread and all the bad stuff. And, yeah. uh, cause we just didn't know what you to didn't eat, know. That you know? was it. Yeah. And, it, and that continued. I did martial arts. That was my first, I started that when I was like nine years old and that was my first job and only job until I joined the military. And, um, so I was very active and I loved sports, but I just didn't know how to eat. And that kind of continued when I was in the military, I started learning more weight training, started working out with the guys and doing what they were doing just by like, okay, learning and observing, but I still didn't know how to eat. So I was chubby throughout those years until I got to, um, until I got to Arizona about 2010 and, uh, I went through a crazy divorce and I was just like, and he was a bodybuilder and I was like, you know what? One day it was a bucket list. I'm going to step on that stage and I'm going to do it. And then I met this girl who was in the army and she was amazing. And it was just like love at first sight. Like we saw each other in the gym one day and it was just instant connection. And, um, she was a vegetarian and she was a competitor, uh, for figure bodybuilding. And she was like, Hey, I think you have a great physique and I want to, you know, test some of my vegetarian meals out oh, on somebody. Cool. And she became like one of my best friends and actually put me through my first show. And after that, I got hooked and I got sponsored as a diamondized athlete. So I work with um, Diamondizer Supplement Company yeah. um, and um, very good to me. I'm, they've traveled me all over the world. Uh, I've got to do a lot of events. And um, Is you it know. NPC? Is that NPC the? is a uh, national... Um, physique committee. Yeah. And um, so like if you want to go to Olympia, like Arnold, that the big, big stuff, yeah. you have to be MPC and then it goes to IFBB and then you can compete in Olympia. So there's other federations that are natural, um, which uh, I'm a natural athlete. And so I compete against people that do, um, you know, do anabolics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, oh, I was going to say, what does that mean? Natural? That just means you're not doing anabolic. Right. You yeah. don't do anything really. I mean, you might take a thermogenic, but natural ones will actually give you a lie detector test. They, um, you have to um, do a urine test and they make sure that you're not on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, now the MPC, they don't test for it. And obviously so all the get, natural competitors, yeah, you know, so <laughs> I'm uh, like, how the, do you look like that? Yeah, no, they have little enhancements and, yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm not against anything that anyone yeah. does it's just i don't do it i would probably die because i have so many allergies to anything anyway. yeah what is it what is it what's the allergy too is it like a protein yeah in the meat? that's what they were saying so my dad actually had it to red meats but then i had all the other extras and my dad huh. had like a tumor in his intestine but i had a throat reaction um so and my dad would never stop eating the red meat um he didn't die from that he was killed long from his job a crane fell on him Ooh. um he moved like cement barriers and stuff but um but my girlfriend had something similar, but she, it, hers was chocolate. And I was very fortunate. I said, I'll do without the meats, <laughs> man. As long as, and her mom worked in a chocolate factory in Pennsylvania. Oh, so I was Hershey. like, yeah, give me those. I was like, I'll take those. I wonder if, you know, I always, I'm curious to this because I've heard this meat thing. Um, Jordan Peterson's daughter is allergic to meat as well. And so she's, she's done some experimenting. Oh, no, she's allergic to to some kind of food, and she she only eats red meat, yeah. and that's what saves her. So it's like the complete opposite. Wow. But what I'm thinking is like, I wonder if it's something in the processed meat. I wonder I'm if you could sure. do wild game. I'm sure. Everyone Have you ever tries. tried? No, and don't try me. I know you're a hunter. I, I know. <laughs> I, know I, I just want to. I want to see like if you eat elk because yeah. elk is so dense in nutrients mm -hmm. and obviously protein. But it's like, I mean, if I if I had to be allergic to meat, 
I would love to be allergic to processed meats because factory farming, oh, I hate, is, yeah. I hate the whole. And so my goal is always to supplement my diet and protein because I'll do other things like soy and mm-hmm. everything else, but supplement it with with just wild game, yeah. as opposed to uh, factory farm stuff. It might, I don't know. But well, now we do I'm like a, lover, a sample. So we just like, do like a little. No, test. I'm good. I think bro. Test. Look, I'm going to give you a sample of something you to might try. Bulk you, up. Might. <laughs> you might win gold or <laughs> yeah. something. You never know. I know. They're all like, man, if you ate meat, you could be pretty big. And I'm just like, well, thanks. I think, but well, I, I'm going to try this. Well, there's a lot of. I, I, you know, I just saw an article on this. There's a lot of misconceptions about vegetarians and their inability to get the proper amount of proteins, right? It is, yeah. And I, I've been a part of some where they like kind of want to study because some people see me and they're like, oh man, she must do some steroids. I'm like, no, but thanks. Like I appreciate it if yeah. you think I'm doing it. But yeah. um, but they think with me being able to put on some muscle uh, mass as, as, uh, with my age group and everything like that is because I started so young. Mm. Um, and so my body got like trained this way without having it. Yeah. 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 So they think the people now that are trying it with these either new fads or they're just trying it and they're also mm. in the bodybuilding side yeah. that they are having a problem putting on muscle. I see that. And, uh, and so that, that I've been kind of like just watching back and forth and the supplementation, anytime you do supplements compared to the natural source, obviously the fillers, you know, don't, don't absorb real well. So I would love to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am fortunate now is like a huge vegan and vegetarian thing. So pea protein is huge and they're starting to bring it out and trying to make everything more organic. Um, and so, I've, I'm planning next year to try some new some new methods and see if I can gain you know a little bit more muscle mass. Uh, but yeah, I you know I think it is a little tricky. Um, but I do think anything when you start at a younger age and your body adapts to it, mm-hmm. that it your body will find another way to mature everything else or yeah. work around it. So uh, a lot of people when they ask me like how long have you been a vegetarian and I'm like well I've been this way since I was like nine. They're like oh maybe that's why her body is able to put on muscle because her body's already adapted to not having the meat protein. So yeah, yeah. some people, yeah, they ask me questions. I don't really know. I'm just like, go with the flow. Their arms are jacked. Yeah, yeah, no, they're bigger than yours, aren't they? They, they <laughs> are. I think they are. They probably are. There's, there's no shame anymore. I'm, I usually do a flex off. Oh, you know, I'm going to do man, this post diet I need to start thing. doing some, lifting some weights before they're we do this. They're just pretty weights though. They're pretty muscle is what I like to call it. Then they, they put me through these workouts and they're like, well, you look pretty muscular. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. I was like, look, some Sometimes they don't work out like you little CrossFitters <laughs> over there. They work me out. What are you doing for working out? Are you doing, is there anything specific like for your routine or when you're in the physique phase, it's real like compound movements focused on aesthetics? Like yeah. What's, what's your routine? So it just depends on what I'm training for. So when I was um, in my first duty station, we, when I started just getting into fitness and stuff, I actually started, well, okay. So when I started competing, um, I was doing more functional fitness because I needed to get better at my job. Mm-hmm. And our jobs are very, you know, uh, endurance related, rucking, you know, with your 60 pound ruck and going for miles and being able to run and climb rope and do all this stuff. And I started training more for that. So mm-hmm. I learned the functional side of it. And that's really where my fitness started. And then once I started learning about food and then doing how to make certain muscles look a certain way, then I started looking into that with when I actually compete but what is hard is when you have a physically demanding job and you want to compete yeah. I'd have to run miles and then I had to figure out how not to lose that muscle yeah. so um, when I my last show I did was in um, not this March March of last year and my uh, coach I was going through the fire academy down at um, down in uh, Goodfellow 
down in Texas. And I had had a literally, he was awesome. He'd be on the phone with me. I was like, Hey, we were out running stairs for an hour and I went this long without food. And he had to like, tell me how much each day he had to tell me like to up my food and down compared wow. to what I normally would do Keep the muscle yeah, on. because I was doing so much endurance training. Mm-hmm. And then I still had to go do my weight training and I was dropping weight too fast and I was getting too, too lean instead mm-hmm. of having that muscle grow. So it can be tricky. I do think it can be done. Like some people are like, I just have to train for body building. And I, I don't think that, I, you know, cause I have a lot of friends who are in the police world or, um, in fitness events and stuff like that. And they still can do bodybuilding. They can do a little bit of both, but it will get tricky cause you will start to drop your muscle when you start doing more endurance things. So what, what's, hard. what are you doing outside of, um, the reserve component of doing training? Like you, for the last two years, you've been doing the fire Academy, mm-hmm. get OJT and everything. What are you doing outside of that in the civilian world? So in the civilian, as far as fitness? No, I mean, as far as uh, career-wise. Oh, so I'm working with a contract company. So I'm mm-hmm. still working with Bomb Dogs right now. Uh, so that's my main source uh, when I'm not doing the firefighting and the reserves. Um, I'm currently an EMT right now. And um, so I'm hoping once I'm done with that and I take my national test, uh, I'm looking to maybe try for some civilian fire departments as well. And I'm uh, starting to get into search and rescued canines is kind of my next route for working dogs. Do they have... So in the EMT side, and you're talking about na- uh, the test for the paramedic? It's not paramedic. So you just have to do your national registry. Oh, so okay, in Arizona, okay. we don't have... Um, so there is, there's like an AZ, um, uh, like EMT, but we don't really have a test for it. So in order to become... Um, an EMT for AZ for Arizona, you have to go and get your national and uh, then you just turn in your cert for that and they give you uh, the permission to work in the state. Where like Pennsylvania, I think was different. You don't actually have to take the national registry. Mm-hmm. You can take the Pennsylvania test and you'll be an EMT and you can't apply for any city departments unless you have EMT. So in DOD though, it's just EMR, you know, responder, medical responder. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually get our EMT through the military fire academy. Yeah. So, that, um, so I, I'm doing that right now through um, my GI Bill, I'm going to EMT school and then I'm oh, hoping, cool. yeah, to take that test. Uh, paramedics are huge right now. You know, they keep saying, hey, you know, if you don't get an home of fire and you want to continue your education, there uh, Arizona's in a high need for paramedics right now. So you could you, you could use the, uh, the fire cert on the Air Force side to transition into the civilian. Yes. And then uh, you'll, you'll do search and rescue with a dog on the fire side? That's what I'm hoping. So that, Phoenix yeah. is really neat. Um, uh, and a lot of the other city departments, uh, what they'll do is they'll have um, volunteer search and rescues that also work with them. But Phoenix uh, Fire has um, the FEMA dogs. They're actually attached to the Arizona Task Force. And you'll see them, they'll go all over. And they're actually paid um, search and rescue handlers. So um, I've gotten to work with a couple of them and talk and, and figure out what they do. And, I, and I, I really like it. So even if I don't get hired on with Phoenix or whatever department, for a fire that I go to um, make sure that I'm a good firefighter. Uh, the next route is I, I really want to work with search and rescue. So I'll either work with a volunteer department um, or try to get in somehow within the training. I'd like to hold on to my bomb dog as well, you know, because I still like that aspect. Uh, but that's kind of my next uh, my next plan for what I want to try to do. Outside of the career careers that you're doing with, um, you know, it's like, it seems like it's like a first responder mm-hmm. genre that you're going after. What are you doing for fun? Like, what are you doing? What's like, what's your passion? Man, I like playing with dogs. I just, I don't know. Really? I think that's about it. No, I like hiking, man. I love, um, so I love being outdoors. So Arizona has yeah. been great moving out here. I live right over by uh, the raceway, the, um, 
the racetrack. And so mm-hmm. my house backs up to Australia mountain. And so we just go on, um, pass and we just go forever. Uh, we have horses. We had to move them when I was started traveling a little bit more. So there, uh, we have them boarded out in Mount Shasta, California, mm-hmm. but I used to horseback ride all the time, me and my sister. Um, and, uh, I love, it's really random. So I like being outside. I like getting dirty. And then I love salsa. Like I, I just started getting what? back into dancing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's, so don't judge me. <laughs> that's really cool I, yeah. i've taken salsa classes before. Uh, yeah I'm I not, cool. my left leg doesn't always go with my right but it's okay and i'm learning and that's i have some awesome. friends who are really good and they laugh but um so i just started doing that with yeah. one of my girlfriends yeah she's like a professional dancer so she'll take me out to some of the classes and i love wow. zumba bro that's how you that's zumba. how you go to the front lines of zumba <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome <laughs> You have so many passions and so many things that you like to do. And a lot of the stuff uh, you do, uh, like your passion, obviously, growing up, it's been dogs. Yeah. Like your life seems to be like always in, in and around dogs. Tell me about this canine and, and her status and what she's doing for you right oh, now. She's special. Um, so this is Almond. Um, so I've been working with her. She's just an EOD dog. Uh, and we're starting to do a lot more training where we have dogs um, at stadiums and uh, big sporting events. So that's what she usually goes out to. And she will actually look uh, and search people now since uh, suicide bombers are one of our bigger threats that have kind of come to the States compared yeah. to what we were used to overseas. So we're starting to see that kind of infiltrate a little bit more. So we're training up the new dogs for that. So you see a lot more what people would say a floppy ear dog. Mm-hmm. Um, at like TSA, TSA went to that as well because uh, a lot of people were saying the pointy ear dogs, our Sheps, our Belgians, were too intimidating. So a lot of these companies started going mm-hmm. to um, labs, uh, even though we've had them in the in programs for years. Yeah. You just see them more more out in uh, venues because people don't complain really as much, yeah. and we still want to make sure that the clientele are you know are working and getting what they need. Um, but yeah, she's still in training. So uh, well, she's fully certified, but she I have a lot of things that I'd like her to do. Um, and get up to because I still kind of have like anytime you deal with explosives, my mind just always goes back to combat. So I would like to have her more um, trained a little bit more on that type of setting where she's more off leash or I can send her, you know, to a faraway package without me having to be up close on her. Uh, so and she was trained pretty much on like a six foot leash. So I'm just working a lot on her being able to be really independent and work far out. So mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate for the people that I've worked with in my career to really um, open my mind to canine training because a lot of people get kind of um, in their ways where they're like, it has to be this way. And this is how the dog was trained where where I came from, the guys, um, man, they put me through the ringer and they just said, well, let's see if it works. Let's try this. And, uh, really opened my eyes to like, there's no one way to do anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she's, she's a good example because she's taught me a lot of things. I've never worked with the lab before and she's definitely different. <laughs> yeah. She seems amazing. And I, that makes sense to me. Like the demeanor of her being a floppy ear dog, mm-hmm. people are less intimidated, but also it allows her to search better. Like, yeah. cause people aren't running dodging and running her. away. Yeah. Um, how long does it take uh, a dog like her that's an EOD dog to train and hit on bombs and to get fully certified and do everything she's doing? So we usually say like maybe like a two-month doggy boot camp, mm-hmm. uh, two to three months, and we'll put them on the odors, and then we'll, we'll see how well she does for that. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll field test them to make sure that they're you know good in the environments now. They went from this very structured environment, seeing the same thing all the time, to now where we're going to put them in chaos you know, with people and see how they adapt to that. So I always say canines are always in training, but usually in two to three months, we can tell if they're going to be a good detector dog as well as a patrol dog. So um, anytime we have a dual purpose dog that we're working that does both detection and patrol, you'll usually see maybe about a six month dog boot camp you know, to see if they're going to make it. And then we say about another six months once they're out in the field to see 
see if they're going to adapt to that out there. So within a year, you know, you've got a green dog that's, you know, pretty sustainable. So she's been out uh, for about two years now uh, and she's got a good nose and uh, I'm just really wanting to work on her independence and building her strength up and everything like that. So you could tell some of the dogs that were really like um, kind of uh, indifferent. She came from uh, the East Coast. So I had to really train her with the heat and she does great now. I mean, she'll go forever. Her feet are really conditioned. Uh, It's just little things that you have to look at when you're at a dog and really put them in those environments. And the reason I train with the PD guys, I get really lucky is we go to all different places. There's all kinds of smells, different dogs. And uh, she gets to see a whole bunch. I mean, we did helicopter training the other day, you know, with uh, some of the guys from the Army Reserve. And, uh, you know, so just in case we ever ran into that, she's already experienced it. And we worked NASCAR this weekend. And they're like, man, she's not even phased by the cars. But two years ago, she was. And wow. uh, so you just have to really get them out there and, and get them into those environments. That's amazing. Um, I want to transition to mindset because, you know, you have a lot of combat deployments. You have seven combat deployments. Yes, sir. And that's a significant amount of combat for anybody. And you you start building uh, tactics or processes in which to deal with, whether it's trauma, loss, discipline. You have a way that your mind is kind of redesigned or re- refabricated. And so describe to me kind of your mindset and you know whether it's discipline for a, a competition that you're doing, or, you know, bouncing back from the loss of your mother. Like, how have you built your mindset? And then, like, if you could frame out some instances of things that you do, like tactics that you do in getting through difficult times or maintaining discipline, can you describe it for me? I think uh, everyone always likes to say, uh, what's your motivation? You know, oh, you have to be motivated to do all these kind of things, and and especially in fitness when you get, you know, dieting and and doing that. But I think anything in life uh, you have to have discipline for, and that motivation isn't going to be there. Um, So I'm not motivated all the time to wake up at, you know, three in the morning or four in the morning to do cardio or sometimes to even train, you know. I mean, I may love it, but I might not be motivated for it. So Discipline really took place when I started karate. Uh, I started learning, you know, about discipline a lot and uh, self-discipline in yourself and uh, keeping yourself accountable. But um, throughout transitions, I mean, we all have down moments. Um, I'm super emotional. I'm like a people pleaser. So I think that was one of my negative things that I've always been working on because if someone said something negative or if I didn't feel like they liked me, it really made an effect on me. And uh, I think I think it's just a personal thing. I don't know where it came from. And uh, I've really tried to learn to not let that get to me and to really just stay true to myself and understand that not everyone's going to like you or, you know, want to be your best friend. You know, I was always like, I don't want anyone to argue. I want everyone to get along and sing Kumbaya. And I think going to combat really changed my mind because I went into a lot of situations where nobody wanted to be my friend because I was a girl. And they're like, oh, you know, like girls can't do this. They're just a pain in our butt. Now we got to pull her weight. And I think that really changed me to really think that like you have to, if you want to do something, you you really have to put your mind to it and you have to do it. And you're going to be told no and you're going to be knocked down left and right. But it's really weird. It's like when I get knocked down, I stay down there for a little bit. You know, I might do a little like self-pity. I don't want to, but I'm like, oh, poor me. And then I'm like, what am I doing, man? Like, just get up and do it. And if I didn't fail as much as I did with going through certain things, then I wouldn't be where I was today. Um, some people just avoid stuff and they don't want to do it because they're, they know they're going to fail. And I've heard a lot of people say that they're like, you do the most random things. And I'm like, well, someone gave me an opportunity and I'm just going to try it. You know, it's not anything I wouldn't want, you know, like I'm against it. 
uh, they're like, yeah, but you're not going to be good at it. You're going to make a fool of yourself. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, that's what happens sometimes. And uh, just learning to step out of my comfort zone was huge for me. And um, and then getting disciplined to know that if you just stay where you are and you don't try things and try to get up and get out, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. You're just going to sit here. And um, I think my biggest passion since when my mom died, that changed a lot for me. And uh, and I just kind of went through an, a, a recent breakup and that really brought me down. And because um, I was set in my timeline, oh, I'm 34, now it's time for me to have kids. And now I'm like, I was ready to get married and my whole world just changed. And I'm like, I'm bombed by myself again. I lost all my friends because I was so into, you know, the person I was with. And I felt like I don't even know who I am anymore. And right now I'm like rebuilding that. I'm like, come back to who you were and try to make it even better. And uh, I think just staying disciplined and putting goals, like small goals to your big goal is what kind of keeps me going. Um, and meeting people and what they go through. I get to meet a lot of people all the time and I get to meet a lot of girls like this society that we live in today with this social media can be really good mm. and it can be really damaging. Um, I'm going to a school this Friday to talk to some young girls um, and it's like, all they want to do is just, uh, I just need to be pretty and some guy's going to take care of me. And I'm like, whoa. And they're like, I just need to put these cute photos up and then I'm going to make money. And I'm like, no, no, honey, that's not how it works. Wow. Or they think they can't do something because they're a girl. And I think my side passion is not just women, but showing other people that you can come from nothing. And if you really want to do something, you can do it. Uh, just don't make excuses for yourself, except that you fail or, you know, that, okay, that wasn't my best or I was slacking and then just press on from there and then get better. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it's an amazing message. It's just like a lot of people just don't want to do it because yeah. they're afraid of that failure. And it seems like a lot of the things that you did, you didn't know if you're going to come out on top or be successful or be certified or, um, you know, or prove yourself and you did it. And you came out on top, you know, a lot of the times. And I think it's important that you highlight the failures, especially people. People don't understand, like, they don't understand that if you come, if you're, if you've, if you're accomplished or you're successful, yeah. it's because, you, because you've accumulated a lot of failure, because you've put yourself out there and took risk. And then you've um, at some point become successful. Yeah, I think like one part that always stay out to me, because canine um, has just such a special place in my heart. Um and it's just a huge passion of mine. But when I first started, my boss told me, he's like, you suck. Like, you're the worst handler I've ever seen. And I was devastated to hear that. And he was just being honest. I mean, I was doing things that was messing the dog up. And, you know, he just didn't sugarcoat it. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I don't want to do this. And I went to my friends and I was like... I I don't think this is for me. Maybe I just need to step away from this career field. And I was lucky enough. I had my buddy, Lindsay, and I'm like, I just need to come in and train more. I just didn't train and learn the same as them. And I had to figure out how I needed to train to get better. And uh, we would come in every weekend and we would do training scenarios and we would just go through it over and over again. And then I'd go to my other buddies who are my trainers, Kyle, who actually lives up here in Prescott. He's a cop now. And uh, my other trainer, Justin, I'm like, man, I suck at this. Like, I just need help. And they would be like, okay, here it is. You know, and they weren't going to tell me what to do. I needed to come out and say, hey, like, this is where my weakness is and I need to get better. And I think that's why the cops in Arizona and the canine community here has been like a lifeline for me because... I wasn't good at all. I was like, I'd see a bad guy, my dog be on the bite and I'd run down the hall. I mean, I would have got shot like six times if someone was hiding down the hallway because it was just my tunnel vision. And I work with my friends and, 
they'll sit here and they just put these things together and they give me all the opportunities and I'm like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Mm. And uh, just being able to have that kind of community really, I think helped me out and, and where I went, but everyone's like, Oh man, you've you have such a great career. I'm like, you have no idea like what I went through. Like people telling me no people laughing at me. Um, you know, I'm, I went through a Raven school and they, all I heard was like, you aren't going to make it, you know, a lot of curse words about women. And it was just to get in my head. They call it a red button. Uh, and once they find out your red button, they just annihilate you. And uh, I learned my red button pretty early. And uh, so that's where I think everything kind of changed. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your your mom and the situation you're in right now where you're going to get surgery yeah. on Wednesday. And I know cancer is such a difficult thing because it's it, it doesn't discriminate. It just it has... It's just brutal in how it comes on, right? It's yeah. the onset. I've, I've had loved ones of mine pass away from cancer, and um, it, it's super scary because it's just so undetermined, and it just seems like it comes in, in random situations, and we're learning now that a lot of it's tied to genetics, and then there's a lot of ways that we could identify early on what it is. And your mother passed away from breast cancer, correct? Yeah, at 60. She just turned 60. Um, and my sister and I got really mad because if she would have went early when she found the tumor, she'd still be here, you know, yeah. to this day. And my sister just had a little baby. So we, you know, I have a nephew and we're all we have now. And, and, uh, and that's hard when you think about it and uh, our mom meant everything to us. And we watched like it eat, it took away her life and it became, she found the tumor when she was in Pennsylvania and she was really adamant about moving to Arizona. She always loved Arizona. When I got orders here, she was like, Oh, I want to come. And I thought she was going to move up here to like Prescott area, not down in Phoenix area or Goodyear. And, um, she just really wanted to be close. And I just didn't understand like my mom, you know, I've traveled all over the world. Like yeah, she's used to my military life. And, um, she was just acting different. And our grandfather died. Her dad was very everything to her. And he had uh, dialysis done, um, when he had bladder cancer and the dialysis is what actually killed him. Mm. And so she thought like anything in the medical world was like deadly. Like she never wanted to get checked up. She hated dentists. She just never wanted to go into a hospital. And, uh, so she had this tumor and she never told my sister and I, she moved down, we moved our horses down. I built a house on my property. And uh, so she lived right next door to me. And then my sister was in school in West Virginia. And then she's like, well, screw it. I'm coming down too. So it was like my whole family. I've been without him wow. for years and now we're all together again in Arizona. And, um, so, which was cool, but I didn't notice like a lot of things were changing within my mom. She was just very short tempered. She, um, was always worried about me traveling. Um, she's like, you have to leave again. I was like, yeah, mom. And then I, when I became the kennel master, I was at work all the time. I was a workaholic and, um, but I loved what I did. And she, uh, she would just get really upset with me and I didn't understand. And then finally, um, she started getting really sick and she started, um, getting really worried about herself. And then she, um, finally went and got tested and, uh, I think she already had stage four breast cancer, but oh, the, wow. the tumor was so large that it actually entered her like chest wall and there was nothing they could do, uh, except that the pain of the tumor, because how big it got, they had to remove it. So they did a double mastectomy on her. And shortly after that was done, I mean, it just took over everything. It paralyzed her. Um, it took her mind, um, and which was very hard for my sister and I to see. Yeah, and yeah. in my aspect, it was hard because I, I was, I had to work. 
And the military is tough a little bit sometimes too. I mean, they, they helped me as much as I could. I was living in San Antonio, so I was flying home almost every weekend, but I had to make financially enough money to make sure that we had everything. Um, and we were paying, she wanted to do the whole holistic thing, which I, at that point I do believe in that stuff, but I don't think it was helping anymore. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was a lot of out of the pocket money. And so I felt like I had to work all the time and I wasn't there for the parts like my sister really really watched her past, you know, having to do more medical stuff. And then she had a boyfriend at a time and he helped with everything. He was an amazing man. And then we had five horses. My mom had like seven dogs. And so it was just a lot, um, a lot of strain on the family as well. And then to see your mom, my mom got really angry with me and that was really hard for me. You know, I was always the good kid and my sister was always the little wild child. And, uh, and it was like, she just got really angry. And, uh, and that hurt me, you know, cause I wasn't there. She used to think I was back overseas all the time when I wasn't oh, working, wow. uh, when I wasn't at the house and she just wanted me to be there. And I, I do, it's hard. I think in the military, um, I wish I was there more, yeah. you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't there for the actual, like seeing her, you know, I was there more for the financial aspect. And, um, so I do, you know, wish I was. Uh, and then when she passed, um, that's when I got out and I was like, you know, my sister and I were both devastated and then we were like, how are we going to take care of these horses and this ranch now? And, and then, then we started working together and, and things have evolved. My sister, she met a great man. She's got a baby. Um, she moved out. Um, you know, so things are, are looking up, but it still feels like yesterday. Our mom just left and it was about three years ago. So, so it seemed, I thought you were going to tell me that she knew about the tumor prior to moving and doing all these things. Um, bringing the family together and then um, wanting to be closer. She didn't know. She knew she had the tumor. She didn't know it was breast cancer. Oh. So she knew she had this tumor five years. Five years in total, she had the tumor. Um, but she just didn't it, want to address and, it. Right. So she didn't tell us about it. And then she wanted to move down to Arizona and still didn't know what it was, but knew she had a tumor and it was growing and she was getting sick. She didn't want to deal with it. Right. Though. And it wasn't until I said, mom, I, uh, until the tumor got so heavy. Um, and we thought she had breast cancer and she just, I was like, cause I had cancer when I was 21 mm. for stage one oh, breast really? cancer. Wow. So I was like, I had it and I didn't go through anything. I did radiation. I had a lumpasectomy. It was super, it, not easy, mm. but it wasn't to what she was going yeah. through. And when she, I was like, mom, if I had this as your daughter, it might be a gene or something. And she just did not want to get, go to the hospital. So we were doing things, assuming it was breast cancer, like doing these vitamin B shots and stuff, going to a holistic doctor that they would do this intravenous stuff. And then that was it. And then finally, when I was moved to San Antonio and she got worse and worse, I said, I can't come back on a humanitarian unless you get a document saying you have terminal cancer. And I was working with the military and my supervisors and they're like, we can't do anything until we get this letter. So when I told her that she finally went in to go see a doctor and that's not even realizing not even knowing how bad it was. Yeah. And that's when they said it was terminal four wow. uh, or um, stage four is terminal. And uh, it made it past her chest wall that um, even chemo won't do anything. It'll just kind of give her a bad like living. They're like, we'll do the double mastectomy to take the tumor pain away. But the cancer itself, there's nothing they can they do. They wouldn't even attempt to do chemotherapy at that no. point. No, they said they would. And she said no, because of what the doctor said. Yeah. And, and when I got 
to go in on one of those appointments and I kind of understood the process and, um, they said it might help a little bit, maybe with some pain, but there's nothing it can do. It made a pest, the chest cavity. Mm -hmm. Um, so then it was just infiltrating her whole body. Uh, and it's probably one of the most brutal cancers I've ever seen take over. When my grandfather died of di um, a bladder cancer, he was still, he became unmobile in the end. And I know it was painful for him, but his mind was still there. Her mind went and, and we had to continue to give her morphine. So she was at home and we took care of her. And it was almost like you're kind of almost like causing your mom to die, like just giving her morphine. She wouldn't talk yeah. to us. You know, she was like in a coma, basically, that it felt like we induced. And yeah. So as kids... Because there's no alternative at that point, yeah. right? And she didn't want to go into a medical hospice, you know, which made it a little harder for us, you yeah. know, but I totally understand, you yeah. know, where she was. I wouldn't want to do that either. Um, but it was just hard, you know, when you have to bathe your mother, you know, and she's supposed to be doing that for you. And then, you know, just she was very embarrassed. She was a very strong woman and... Mm you know, we had to change the the bag, colostomy bag and all that stuff. And, and she just was embarrassed. And we like, we didn't care, mom, you know, yeah. but for her, for us to do that to her was very hard for her. You yeah. Know, so. And now uh, you're, you have a planned surgery coming up. Right? I do. I actually um, brought, had another tumor came back um, and uh, it is stage one again. So I am going to get that removed. And um, I'm hoping I'm done with this. So, so what is it? do you have to do chemotherapy again? No. So I did radiation treatment um, and the tumor shrank. But what happens is... Oh, it's uh, the same tumor. Yes. Okay. It, it's another tumor in the right side um, that they removed before. Uh, they remove a lot in a lumpasectomy. They'll remove the tumor and a lot of tissue around it. But um, sometimes it does come back. And in my case, it did. And um, which I should do a double mastectomy. But um, I'm just not for some other reasons. I'm just going to do a lumpasectomy again where they're going to remove pretty much... a half the breast um and then we'll go from there and then you're gonna um continue to monitor it and, and like that i'm assuming there's like a protocol to uh, analyze and monitor and yeah and, and i'm very fortunate with the military and everything like that that they're still you know taking care of all that and um, i'm very good so um yeah it, and it, it's so common nowadays breast cancer it's really yeah. weird um if you can catch it early um there's so many things that they can do but once it makes it past a certain stage, it is brutal. And is that tied, the, having it past a certain stage, is that tied to the tumor's growth? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and the location of it usually as well. Um, but once it makes it out of like, it's kind of like a socket. You know, once it makes it out of this little fatty area and it starts going to your organs, that's when everything starts failing. Mm. Uh, and, and to watch it actually happen was, is really like, uh, I guess you can say educational in, in some aspect, but to see how it fully took over the brain and the heart and the lungs and wow. then the spinal cord. Um, the spinal cord is like the, was what happened to her when she went paralyzed. And it's just because the cancer attacked it. Wow. So um, even though it started in the breast, it doesn't remain there. And that's how people die from it then. Did you self-detect? I did, yes. Hmm. So. so you self-detected and you went to the hospital and then you confirmed. Yeah, and because I have a gene for it, um, which is funny, I haven't had my sister actually test for it and I always told her. Oh, she you had tested this, for genetics? When I, when, my, uh, when I first had it. Yeah. So, and they said I have a gene for it and that's why I was really up, like one with my mom to say when she, you know, said she had a tumor, she wasn't feeling good. I'm like, mom, mm. like, you know, if they're saying I have the gene, I don't, my dad was, had so many issues. So she thought all my bad stuff came from my dad's side. Yeah. Uh, having so many medical problems as a kid. But um, I, I do now, you know, think it was from her. Um, my grandpa, my grandmothers didn't have it. Um, not that we 
knew of. Um, but I, I get worried about my sister and I'm just like, please just get tested. Yeah. Now in the military, they test us for everything. So yeah, I'm yeah. pretty fortunate still being into um, that I still get tested all the time. So that's kind of like when I found it. So. Mm. And when is your surgery? Um, it is the 20th. So it's coming up. Yeah. Okay. We're praying for you. I know. That's why I was like, I want to play. I was like, let's go shoot some guns or something, but just give me a little bit of time. The 20. And then how long was the, um, the recovery for that? Uh, it just depends. They say six weeks where you're not really supposed to be doing anything. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that's hard for me. Um, just to be like, Oh God. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And, um, and the doctor that I work with knows me pretty well. And she's like, you really need to just stay out of the gym and not do anything. She's like, don't be trying to do no bite work or do anything with the dogs. And I'm just like, okay. But um, so without lifting, I mean, I'll be mobile and I'll be able to do stuff after the first couple of days. So it's not as bad. Um, and I think just kind of going through it before, it's just a mental game. I think now the reason I'm so sentimental to it is uh, because of what happened with my mom. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like I'm reliving some of it or I'm angry maybe because she didn't, you know, get it done or check earlier so it has more of an emotional state yeah. than um physical or pain or anything like that yeah well i'm glad you're getting checked out and i'm glad you're handling yeah, that thanks, let's talk about let's talk about vision of vets a little bit because i know the the way i met you or the way we we were brought together was vision of vets and vision of vets did a portrait of you which i saw before they did the portrait of me and if you guys are listening to this podcast it's i posted it before and it's just a um, a picture of me holding a flag, but it's a cool little interactive piece to it where you can put the cell phone or an iPad or whatever it may be to the picture or portrait itself. It identifies it, and then it live talks. But the whole point of Vision of Vets is uh, – well, I'll let you talk about it because you you know about the mission. You, you've done – the portrait. Talk about your portrait and then uh, Vision of Vets. So I got a great opportunity. Um, Bruce Roscoe reached out to me and a friend of mine, Kyle Altop, and um, – told us about, you know, his time in the military, how he's a photographer and um, what he was trying to do. And with the world going to technology, he says, I feel like we're losing our history of where we're coming from. And now everyone's on their phones and doing all this stuff. So he showed me and we met for a lunch um, up this way. And he showed me this live portrait app and then a photo of a code talker, Navajo code talker that he did. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. It came to life. And then it tells the story from the actual person. And I was like, man, this is really neat, man. Like with everyone being on their phones now and and kind of like uh, taking it that way and making it a live, like actual um, presentation, I was really impressed by it. And he's like, he wanted to do cover like 13 wars was like his first thing that he wanted to touch. And um, he's like, uh, they did have a woman. I can't remember her name. I think she worked on the aircraft. I remember seeing her picture. He's like, I have one woman, but I don't have one that's actually been like in combat. And he's like, I'd like to get someone to represent the Afghanistan war. And uh, I was like, oh, he's like, and I heard you and you have a dog. And I was like, yes, the four legged one is usually more important. So uh, I was really fortunate. Um, He heard about some of the stuff we did overseas and uh, heard about uh, military working dog crash. And uh, we got to be uh, their Afghanistan representative as well as the canine representative. Um, So it was really neat. Um, We got to exchange our stories. We got to shoot up in his little um, his studio, which was cool. So Kyle, who was his previous handler, um, who's uh, with the Prescott PD now, he came up and we actually retired crash to Kyle. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, and he was my first, uh, he was my first trainer, Kyle too. So I'm sure he's has many stories of me that I hope never make it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't have him here next. And, um, he is just an amazing guy and we, we brought crash and it was pretty entertaining. It was like a Holly 
Hollywood style, trying to get Crash to rotate on this circle thing and bark. And so it was pretty funny. We're pretty used to it, actually. Um, so we got to tell the story of the dog, kind of where they came from. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, you know, uh, all the dogs that we were not able to bring back home in Vietnam uh, because we didn't have uh, vaccinations back then. Um, so we really try as a canine community to keep that history alive of our Vietnam handlers as well as the dogs were a part of World Worlds. Uh, they were even back in the Civil War um, and the Seminole Wars that people didn't really even know about. So just keeping that history alive for us means a lot. And then when Bruce came to us about it, we were just super excited. Um, so yeah, so and uh, they've kept going. Vision of Vets is getting huge. We got to do a couple demonstrations and it was really neat. Kind of felt like Hollywood. We go into the schools and they were like, crash. And I'm, I'm always the girl with crash, which I've accepted very well <laughs> in my career. Uh, no one ever knows my name. We always go by team dog. So it's like team crash, team mayo, team, you know, whatever dog you were with, that's the team you were. But um, and they just knew the story of this dog. And it was just fabulous what Vision of Vets was doing in these schools with these kids, because I feel like, you know, uh, I'm very proud of where I came from, veterans, the military. And it's like they don't even know about it really sometimes and and the wars that have been done and and the lives that have been lost for the country and what's really happening over there and overseas and what they see on the news is so different and it just was remarkable to see these kids so excited um and and veterans day was so big and um it made crash seem like a star you know and they already knew a story coming in and, uh, and to see now where it's going, Mike, when I got to see your video and everything and then meet with you for the radio talk show, I mean, that was just awesome. And uh, I have lots of friends that are fans of yours. They're like, yo, you met Mike Glover. And oh, I was really? like, oh, yeah. I, I was like, he's a cool dude, man. They're like, oh, man, you got to tell some stories. I was like, okay, I'll get some <laughs> stories, I swear. But um, just seeing that and now watching Vision of Vets capture so many stories and bringing it to not only the kids but to the adults and bringing it out I would love to see this in museums I think the portraits one are just beautiful um, that Bruce takes but then the story behind it and how they're incorporating it with technology uh, is really neat I could see a whole bunch of kids going through a museum with their phone with this app and then just kind of scanning over these photos to see us come to life and I think it's neat that they, they capture it now because um, I know before they had to get some reenactors for some of the other people that you know we've lost in age Yeah. Um, but man I, I just think it's great. I, I hope it keeps moving forward. Um, I did hear that they have, a, I think, a Navy SEAL coming up next mm -hmm. uh, for their next story. Uh, and uh, I know I learned a lot about my history just by watching everything that Recapping, Bruce did yeah, yeah, with Vision of Vets. So I was like, man, I didn't even know that existed. That's and, cool. and working with Jerry the other day, too, with the yeah. Normandy, you know, I was just like, wow. And and I lose it a lot. You know, I, I wasn't a real big history buff. and uh, But then it was like certain things like this to just really brought attention and it kind of caught my eye. So I'm very fortunate to be a part of the group. And uh, and I'm hoping to see it grow, you know. Yeah, I, I just hope, you know, it's, I see all these nonprofits and there's nonprofits that are doing things like taking guys hunting and, you know, doing all kinds of good stuff with good intent. Yeah. But there's something real impactful about preserving our history. Mm -hmm. And like when I, when I, even when I, even when I podcast you and I hear your history, like 50 years from now, that's, it's significant now, but imagine how significant it would be 50 years from now yeah. when our generations or generations of men and women have forgotten uh, kind of where we've been, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's the global war on terror or all the wars that America has been involved with. I mean, when you think like World War II, like 400,000 Americans died in World War II. I know. Like, And people just don't, I mean, it's a statistic, right? It, just, it yeah. doesn't mean anything. But if you heard the voices of veterans talking 
about their experiences and their story, that completely changes everything because there's an emotional connection. Now it's real, yeah. right? And I think the the video telling, the audio narrative, and then the pictorial process of like outlining that experience, like they do it so beautifully, oh, right? Man. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, the fact that they do that, uh, it, it fits into a bigger picture to me. I don't think it's just about the portrait. It's mm-hmm. about avocation. And uh, we were talking about it before the podcast for a long time. Yeah, just a little, I think. <laughs> really, really passionate <laughs> yeah. conversation. But I, I think, Passion is good. I think, you know, Lisa and Bruce and everybody who's involved with Vision of Vets, I think it should be involved in some way, form or fashion with every school that's teaching kids history. history oh, period, huge. Right? I mean, when I was, oh man, that's many moons ago too. But when I was, you You're know, so in young, school, <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> many moons, many moons ago before the first harvest, is, uh, <laughs> my native that's side. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it, history was huge, and um, and just the little things that we did. I mean, coming from Pennsylvania with Gettysburg and everything. I mean, mm. you know, we do reenactments, and we'd had so much that really like stuck with me. And then from a lot of schools and my friends that have become teachers over the years. They tell me like we're losing it, you know, and I'm like, why? I, I don't know what it is. And, and I think as we were having our conversation earlier, like, what is it that we're losing? Um, what's happening, uh, you know, in our history our, uh, with the times changing and why are we not showcasing this? And uh even growing up in the military, just having more of the canine background, uh, it, it blew my mind when I would talk to people. I'm like, you guys didn't know that like when our handlers came back from Vietnam, the dogs were left over there basically to die. And people were like blown away, you know, or about how many people we've lost in war and the people that were over there doing these things. And I think we're losing like the idea of that there are people over here fighting for your freedom. You know, yeah. we say it all the time, but I don't, I think people are just starting to get, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, everything's just like, oh, this is just golden, you know, like nothing's ever going to, they feel like privileged for everything. And I think I've seen that in like how society is kind of going. And it was really unique when I went to this school um, with a friend of mine, Uh, we went out for Veterans Day and they actually go to school on Veterans Day and they celebrate veterans and they, and they look over the history and that blew my mind because everyone's like, oh, Veterans Day is just a day off, you know, and we do something with the flag. Yeah. You know, those lines are long, bro. So I've never done one of them. (laughs) I was in one. Yeah. I was going to say free breakfast. Yeah. For like five hours. But it's just crazy to see what we've lost. And uh, I really just hope we bring history back Mm -hmm. and, and, and have a a patriotism where people understand what these people are doing for them. Mm -hmm. You know, that it is that you're an American and, um, that people are really fighting for you, you know? And I, I think like people are like, why do you support war and stuff? I, I don't really support war. I, I support like the people I'm here with, my brothers and sisters, you know? And I went over there, I, I don't understand politics really. Yeah. And uh, in just like going out to combat, they're like, oh, well, you're supporting this. And I'm like, no, what I'm supporting is this team that's about to go out here yeah. and have to do something and I don't want them to die. Mm-hmm. And they're my brothers and sisters and I want them to come home. And so it's just a little bit of a different mindset Um but with vision events, I think like if we had this in schools all the time, learning new ways to bring the history in to keep, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, the kids interest is is huge. And um, and it's like the museums. It's like I don't even hear kids wanting to go to museums anymore. I so I was like, I don't know if I'm under a rock or what, but yeah. um, it just seems like times have really changed. And uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, I, we I mean, we wanted we're trying to do a special forces and ranger museum 
Uh, a special operations awesome. game here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, including a dog portion of it, so I'll talk to you about oh, that. Let me, I'm sure I could find some guys that oh, I'll yeah. bring. Yeah, that would yeah. be awesome. I, th- I think it'd be cool because we want to integrate technology into the museum yeah. so it's cool again. Mm-hmm. And I think part, I mean, societal-wise, I think part of the issue is everybody's offended by everything. Yes, I'm offended by that. You know that yeah, right I know. <laughs> you, you should be. You should be offended. So, I like offending you. Yes, I know. This works out great. So, so I, what I don't understand is, like I've done speaking engagements where I talk about war and they're like, hey, tone down the, oh. you know, the death or the gun, or the these portions of the story <laughs> that make the, it's not the story, but it's uh, significant elements to the story that bring it together. So yeah. it's like, you know, people are covering their ears when they hear about war, when they hear about death, and that is the reality. Right. You know, the reality is, it's just like schools that I, that we teach active shootings uh, to, yeah. where we've offered active shooting training um, or mass shooting training to schools for free. Where they say, "Hey, that's we don't want to bring that into our school." I'm like, "That's huge." You, you don't want to bring ready. reality. You don't want to bring security to your school. But we, it's not like we go in there and we we talk grotesquely about right. the circumstance. We do it tactfully, right? And so preparedness, preparedness. Yeah. And so when when we look at like schools and we're talking about history, there are some instances that we've kind of turned the tides where we talk about slavery uh, openly you know we talk about you know history where america did a lot of wrongs right but it's like there's an opportunity here to talk about a lot of rights what we can do yeah yeah like uh, the the vietnam war is a, a great example of where history was twisted because of political issues but men and women still served and died during vietnam mm-hmm. so we don't have to take away from the historical reference by talking about the patriotism and how well involved Americans were in that war serving and right. dying in Vietnam. Um, it, we don't have to cross political lines of talking about service. And that's, for me, that's what scares me about uh, the issues that we talked about with uh, uh, people in the community, which is there are some schools who are dictating that we won't talk about patriotism or service or military because it might be offensive when that's the catalyst to service. That's yeah. the catalyst to creating a mindset where kids go, hey, maybe I should serve my nation, or right. maybe this is a good option. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just did a special operations prep course, which we do uh, four times a year, where we train young men and women that want to try out for special operations. Oh, that is awesome. Or the military. Yeah. And we we treat it like a mini selection, but we put them through instances of like rucking. Of oh, that is so cool. Team week. Uh, and we even do it like, you know, I was a sergeant major in SF, so I have a sergeant major's board at the end where yeah. we tell them their, their, um, what they did right, right and what they need to work on. And half of those kids will be from the Prescott recruiting office with Matt Vinson that we are literally cycling and saying, hey, we recommend you for Ranger, and they'll sign up the next day for a Ranger contract here in Prescott. And so the community is already creating through uh, business, uh, through the recruiters, and through uh, the mayors. Yeah. Big shout-outs to the Prescott and Prescott Valley mayors. They're real cooperative with business and understand this. But we're creating a funnel to, to get men and women to serve, right. showing them the right path. And so I think schools have an opportunity and they're missing out the opportunity when they can't allow you to come in and talk to the young men and women who might be looking at it as an option. Yeah. And then you talking about like 
how impactful it's been in your life. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know where I'd be without the military. Me either, man. Like it's kind of scary. Like I think about it a lot and you know, when we have our, our moments when we're all like, you know, remembering all our, our happy days and we're like, man, what will we be doing or yeah. what direction would it have taken us without building this whole foundation? And, uh, I know I'm extremely thankful even when like the worst days where I'm like, oh, I hate this and oh, why did I do this? And I'm just like, man, if I didn't do this, like I wouldn't have made it to half of the things that I've done. And yeah, and it, it's just, it's just looks so different upon, I think now with the young age. And I, it's just, it's a little scary. And it kind of reminds me of like, uh, I'm afraid like it's going to go the direction of the whole act they have against police now, you know, yeah. and, and that scares Ooh, me. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, you know, being so much with canine, my world of police uh, and first responders on the state side compared to combat has gotten really big. And I just don't understand this hatred. And I started to see it, I think, more now to like it's starting to go maybe more into the military because of how the politics are kind of produced. Mm -hmm. And people are looking like you want to go to war, you want to kill. I'm like, no, that's that's not it at all. But it's starting to have another look upon it now. And, and I, we all looked at it as it started with the whole cop thing. And, um, and now wow. we started to see a little bit more with that, with the military aspect, although the military aspect is still, we're able to kind of bring it back home and bring it more to like a warming state. Um, you can see kind of how it goes back and forth when we go into wartime or when media covers war and, and everything like that and yeah. how they make military members kind of, kind of go that yeah, That's a good point. Cause it's like, there's a political divide, obviously. And if, if you're on one, side because you're supporting because you know obviously the commander-in-chief is the president of the United yeah. States that's our boss we serve whatever political party and an administration is in the government mm -hmm. that's what we do it's our, our job and I think I've, I've been through a few presidents four presidents I think through service and so it doesn't matter and like you said you're fighting for your teammates left and right, right. you're not fighting for a political affiliation you're doing your job and I, that is the scary thing because this overwhelming lack of support for law enforcement because maybe a few bad apples. Yeah. And maybe. bad apples are going to be everywhere, everywhere. Honey. I mean, like I hate to tell people, but then they see something affiliated with a, a uniform or something and they just assume that that whole thing is the entity of it. But like with you guys teaching active shooter to me, that would be great. You know, like whenever I do decide to have kids, man, my kid's going to learn how to fight, yeah. how to say, you know, protect himself and know these types of drills. And obviously it comes from our backgrounds and what we've seen and what we've been exposed to. But it is funny because when we do talk about stuff like that, like, have you been through an active shooter? And we talk to a lot of teachers, which are predominantly women, they kind of like shy away from mm. it where I'm like, no, man, Very you're going to want to know what to do. Yeah. And you're going to want to know if there's a gun in here, how to use it. So mm. a lot of women that I meet and they're like, well, I'm scared. And be like, this is kind of a world that we're living in right now. And I would be much rather you prepared and you understand it if it by any chance does happen to you. And, and I can totally see with your demeanor, you'd be able to, you know, make that a warm and fuzzy, but some people will just never, if you talk about a gun, it yeah. just goes completely the opposite direction. And, and that's just still hard. I don't know how to kind of go that route. Yeah. I think that's key that. is like not dumbing it down, but changing your, the way you interact or interface mm -hmm. with civilians. Because if you just come in there and you're like military minded, yeah. right. And you just start <laughs> dictating <laughs> doctrine and you're just going over task condition standards, it's completely different. And, and a lot of people do confuse preparedness with paranoia. Yeah. They think, Hey, if you're preparing, it's because you're paranoid and yeah. that makes me more anxious. But what they don't understand is being prepared makes you prepared and less anxious right. because you, 
you know how to deal with the circumstance or situation. Yeah, and you I, have a solution yeah. instead of none at all. And you might just have like a heightened situational awareness where mm-hmm. it was really funny. I, I worked NASCAR, right, um, this last weekend and um, and we're down there and we're searching and we're just kind of out, you know, wherever the drivers are is just out of protection. And I didn't see it because I was looking one direction, but I guess somebody walked away very fast. And uh, so uh, just a random, you know, person who was enjoying the thing just comes up to me and they're like, hey, they saw you with this dog and this person took off this way. And they didn't mean it any bad. They just yeah. saw a reaction. They just had their eyes open and it, and it kind of helped me. I'm like, okay. And obviously you probably thought I was a drug dog handler, which I was not. But anyway, <laughs> it helped me locate the guy and then search around him just to make sure. But just having some situational awareness, you know, was there with that couple. Um, and they just kind of noticed that. And it's not to be paranoid that every anything's going to happen just because you see dog teams out or if you see SWAT come out or something like that, everyone's like, what's going on? It's just out of measures. Um, but it is good for, I think, young kids or certain people to start to see certain things and, you know, know what to do in a situation if it happened. Yeah. Um, just if it did, just like 911, when we teach all the kids, you know, okay, or if you get caught on fire, you know, this is what you're going to do. Stop, drop mm-hmm. and roll. And this is where you call. And I think it's just as we're learning that these are more common things that we run into, it should be a little easier to train or, or run, you know, fire drills or an active yeah. shooter drill. And I know in the military, we do it a lot yeah. uh, with our kids and the bases and stuff like that on there. And I think it's just when we get out to areas that don't see it as much, or maybe it's not too big on the city, um, then we start, they start getting a little bit like, no, that would never happen to yeah. us out here, you know? And yeah. I'm like, no, honey, you don't know this is going to happen anywhere. And to be ready for it. I mean, they have you out here. Yeah. I'd be calling you. I'd be like, hey, Mike, come world. to I'm there. I'm, I'm QRF. Bring the band. Yeah. I'll bring all the boys. Um, let's that last question I want to ask you is uh, where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? Man, uh, you know, I don't, that's a good question. I would say the president, right? No, but I would never <laughs> want to be the president. Everyone always jokes, job. like, don't you want to be the president? No. no. Do you see job. what he goes through? Oh like, gosh, no, man. man. Um, you know, in 10 years, I've put a lot to my career, um, and I did give up a lot of family, um, unfortunately, for my career. And uh, I was, I'm was i really hoping in the next 10 years that I'll hopefully you know, be able to um, have a family. I would love to have kids. Um, I, ha- I got another dog, so I have four dogs that are like my kids. Um, but I would love to have that. Um, I would like to be retired um, from one job and probably getting into another one. I don't see myself really slowing down too much or just kind of hanging out. I do like to work. Um, I would like to travel some more. I, uh, I used to travel a lot um, for fun. I like to visit. I love to like do uh, community events and volunteering. Uh, so I have some friends that go like to Africa and do like crazy stuff. And um, I think I'd like to do some of that. So uh, I could still, I think I might be in the fire service, maybe in 10 years. That might be a plan. We'll see. And then, uh, and still training animals. And uh, I always wanted to work with dolphins because I think I was a dolphin. So maybe one day I'll be in a zoo. I don't know. Um, that will be my end goal of animal training, either monkeys or dolphins. A dolphin trainer, huh? Yeah, there's actually a program in San Diego um, with the military, with the Navy, um, that I've been looking at for a long time. Uh, and I've gotten very fortunate to go out there. And uh, unfortunately, San Diego is very expensive. Super so expensive. So I have to, uh, and they have it in Georgia as well. Uh, they also have alligators in Georgia. So I'm thinking about that one. Um, but um, <laughs> there is a program out there that they have working dolphins and sea lions uh that look for intruders and uh, i think i would be uh really entertained so once i retire from one of my jobs uh i want to think about pursuing that as well depending on what happens here with the fire service that's really cool that's yeah. a good 10-year plan yeah not you get dolphins you dolphins got dogs, dogs babies kids. yeah i'm gonna have a babysitter that's for sure that's a I great can. that's a that's a great lineup <laughs> Um, so if people want to check you out and just, you know, cause you'll be posting about this podcast and, 
you know, if somebody's looking for advice on nutrition and yeah. fitness and military and I everything else. I like to else. eat and get fat. So yeah. that's why you have to be on diet because I eat too much. Too. How do people stalk you on social media? You got a, a social media handle? Yeah, I love stalkers to? too. So come <laughs> on sure in. you got a lot. I, <laughs> I get some weird stuff. Oh, when I'm I thought not, I'd I'm seen some weird things. America, you got some funny things. Oh, um, I get it every day. It's yeah, crazy. I was going to say, I bet you do. Oh, and sometimes you're like, I'll just go back overseas. Yeah, things are a lot easier. Contracting life, I make twice as much money and yeah. it's so easy oh, oh man. man it's so funny bro i wish um so uh my instagram is jesse j-e-s-s-i-e keller k-e-l-l-e-r 24 and then uh, i also have a facebook page it's just jesse keller you'll see a picture of me and a dog so you'll know it's me it's a little dutchy um but those are my my two areas um and if you're ever in phoenix hit me up if you ever want to do training dog training canine training i'm always down fire training uh, I love learning. So it's like if anyone comes here and they're kind of supporting in all those units, let us know. So Awesome. Awesome. You heard it. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. It was a great podcast. <laughs> it was so stoked. You have to say it because my arms are bigger. You know, <laughs> they are. They're scared. huge. They're massive. Yeah. We're going to go curl some <laughs> weights go, right yeah, now. Let's, let's go do wrestle, it. bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate y'all.